Well, as I mentioned to you last week, we will be postponing Luke until after the first of the year, and we actually will be thinking of the return of Christ today. It's the first Sunday of Advent, if one followed a church calendar, which we are not obligated to do, but I tend to like to focus on the return of Christ on this day as we next week move into the season of the year in which we begin our Christmas music. Actually, we end with an Advent hymn in our service today, and through the entire month of December, we will focus upon the birth of Christ. But today, the return of our Savior who came and purchased us unto Himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our gracious God and Father, the richest privilege is prayer to be enabled by your Spirit to come into your presence and to acknowledge your worth and greatness and to ask in faith that you will hear us as we now come and sit under the authority of your Word. These are privileges rich indeed. It is beyond our comprehension. For once we were dead in trespasses and sins and we had an idea of prayer, but it was not not Christian prayer. We had an idea of God, but it was not the God who is. But now you have revealed yourself to us in the Holy Scriptures, applied the gospel to our hearts, and we long to hear you speak to us through your sovereign word. May we be determined, each of us, to bow his or her heart completely under the authority of Holy Scripture, for it is the King who speaks to us as the word of God is expounded. Hear our prayer. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one who was born, the one who obeyed the law that we broke, the one who shed his blood on the cross, who was raised from the dead, who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, and who is coming again. These things we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand as we read 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 13. This is the Word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, the King is coming. Now, we are about to commemorate Christmas, but we live after the birth of Christ, and the next great epoch on God's calendar will be the return of His Son. 
And as many of us go through the Christmas season with the joy of our redemption foremost, many of us also simultaneously have heavy hearts and heavy burdens, and we are going through really hard trials. So once again, how appropriate that we give attention to the triumph of the one who was born in Bethlehem long ago. Yes, in his cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension, but also his triumph in his final coming, his return. So we now turn to this text in 1 Thessalonians 4, and what a text it is. We begin, first of all, with this. Grief acknowledged and addressed. Grief acknowledged and addressed. Now, you've noticed the purpose of this text. It is to give comfort to the grieving, to show that Christians grieve, but when we grieve, we do not grieve hopelessly. Rather, we grieve in a gospel context and therefore in the certainty of faith. The background was this. Is there no hope for the Christian dead? Uh, The Thessalonians wondered if Christ comes back for us when we are alive. They lived expectantly of the coming of Christ. If Christ comes back for us when we are alive, we know that we will be with the Lord. But what about our Christian loved ones who have already died? Now, the use that the apostle makes of the return of Christ in answering that question, of course, is to give comfort. Notice at the end in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He gives comfort to the grieving by pointing them to the sure and certain resurrection that awaits all Christians who die before the return of Jesus Christ. These promises revolutionize the Christian's view of death. Our Christless culture will either mask over death or else will despair because it is consistent with itself, realizing that apart from Christ there is no hope. But the Christian approach never trivializes death. Death is the result of the fall of Adam and all his posterity sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression, and so death has come upon us all. But we live as Christians now in the joyful hope of the return of Jesus Christ with many precious promises of an undefiled, unfading inheritance. And so Paul instructs the Thessalonians, the Christian dead will not miss out The Christian brothers and sisters who have died before the return of Christ will not miss out when he returns, and he sets before them the hope that is to determine their thinking and their feelings and the attitudes of their hearts and minds. Now, that's the application that the Apostle Paul makes of this, but I also would point out to us that other applications can be made and should be made of this passage. Applications beyond the immediate. The immediate application puts grief over the death of loved ones into a proper framework so that when we genuinely grieve, and we should, death is the result of the fall, we should grieve. But when we do grieve, we grieve as Christians, we do not grieve as the world grieves in a hopeless manner. But more broadly, there are other kinds of grief, are there not? The Christian grieves over the state of the world. The Christian grieves over his own sin. 
The Christian grieves over loss of many kinds. And the scripture, the teaching of scripture here applies to those many sad and difficult losses of life. It lifts up our head to the reality of the end of all sorrow when our Savior will return and he will wipe every tear away from the eyes of his people. So specifically, specifically in this passage, what are the comforts for grieving hearts? Yes, especially at the time of death, but in the midst of grief, no matter what your grief may be. What are the comforts? Well, that leads us to our second point and the first answer to the question, what are the comforts for grieving hearts? And this second point is, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. That's a comfort for grieving hearts, is it not? Notice how he puts it in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so the apostle in verse 14 argues for something that you find in many of his epistles, and especially in 1 Corinthians 15, that there is an inseparable connection between Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of his people. In 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter, you will remember in verse 20 that the apostle puts it this way, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that word firstfruits is an Old Testament word, and it's extraordinarily important. Firstfruits is the first portion of the entirely anticipated crop. So when a farmer excitedly brought an offering and praise and worship to God into the temple, the first portion of the crop, he was actually saying the entire crop is anticipated in this portion that I offer to the Lord. Well, Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection is the first portion of the entirely anticipated resurrection harvest. And that means for us not only that our resurrection and transformation into the likeness of Jesus is something that is sure, it means that, but that's not all that it means. It means also that when Jesus was raised by the power of his Father from the dead, that your resurrection has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. That his resurrection is the first fruits of those who sleep. In Christ's resurrection, the resurrection harvest has already begun. So Jesus was not abandoned to the grave, and none of those in union with him are abandoned to the grave. And that's why Paul uses the term asleep. Notice again verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, sleep, of course, refers to the fact that their souls, of course, are with the Lord, fully cognizant, worshiping the Lord, they're present with Christ, but their bodies still rest in their graves. Sleep refers to the body, not the soul. Christ is said to have died. That is, he bore the wages of sin, which is death. So that now the believer, when he dies, that it can be said of him, he sleeps 
Why? Because the wages of sin, death, has been paid by Jesus on your behalf, in your place, on the cross, as your substitute. He will come then and reunite the souls of those who have gone to heaven, who are now there worshiping in his presence, with their bodies that will be raised up in the resurrection. Imagine, imagine those old moss-covered graves opening up, those old mausoleums opening up. I don't know how he'll do it, but he does it. He's the sovereign Lord and master of life. He rose. He will bring us to life as well. And so he will reunite the souls of those who have gone to heaven with their bodies in the resurrection. And Paul uses the term sleep for the simple reason that sleeping people wake up. Thank you. (laughs) Sleeping people wake up. There is no reason to be uneasy about the future of those who die before the return of Jesus Christ. So the first comfort that he gives, Jesus rose and our resurrection is inseparable from his, inseparably reunited with body and soul because Jesus rose from the dead. The second comfort is Jesus will come. He will return and raise the dead. Now, the Apostle Paul uses in this passage of the coming of Christ the term parousia. It's a word that was used of the visit of a king or of an emperor. The idea of a secret rapture is far into the New Testament. There's nothing secret here. There is one return of Christ, and it will be bodily, visible, and immediately followed by the final judgment. The separation of the body and soul are not permanent. Christians who are alive when Jesus returns will not precede the Christian dead. They will be reunited with their souls in the resurrection. So what will happen when Jesus returns? Well, let's let that be a separate point for you note takers. The fourth point, what will happen? Now, Paul doesn't tell us everything that will happen, but he tells us a lot about what will happen. What will happen when Jesus returns? First, Jesus will come with a shout of command. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of the archangel. So he comes with a shout of command. The Lord himself will come. No surrogate. Jesus himself will come. As Ellicott, one of the old commentators, said it so beautifully, his own august personal presence. And when he comes, he will come with a mighty summons. Now, you remember Jesus before the tomb of Lazarus when he said in a loud voice, come forth. And what happened? He came forth. I've told you this, some of the old preachers used to say, had he not been specific, the whole cemetery would have been emptied. Uh, Everyone would have come forth. Well, the point is well taken. Specifically, he says to his people, come forth. He comes with a shout, the return of Christ, public and open, returning with a sovereign summons. And the word is used of military commands and probably here is used to stress that Jesus who once came in utter humiliation now returns as a total conqueror. 
The second thing that will happen is he comes with the voice of the archangel. Look at verse 16 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. And so there's the voice of Michael, because the only archangel mentioned in the Bible is Michael. We find him in Jude 9. He is the one who had warred against Satan. And Paul is telling us that this will be the voice of triumph, that this will be the voice of victory over Satan. Sometimes if you're uh, over in England, you go to Coventry Cathedral, notice on one of the outside walls, Epstein's bronze sculpture of the archangel Michael defeating Satan. Uh, look it up online. It could, be, it could be something for you to take note of. The question is, as we read this text, are we listening? Are you listening for that voice? But then there also will be the trump of God. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Which brings to mind Old Testament holy war. You will recall how the walls of Jericho fell when the trumpets were blown. The trumpets announced in the Old Testament freedom, deliverance, redemption in the year of Jubilee. Roman soldiers used trumpets to strike tent, to form lines, to announce a march. And so many things might come to the minds of hearers, and Paul perhaps wants all of them to, to think about what they know about the sound of a trumpet. Those who have heard the Roman soldier, those who are familiar with the Jewish world, Paul uses this image in another place in describing the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, verses 50 and following. The apostle says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. But then fourthly, the dead in Christ shall rise. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is to say, first, before the living are caught up, they will rise first. They will rise before the living believers are changed. But I want you to note something that is very 
very sweet. It should be very sweet indeed to the Christian. Notice there that it says, the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ shall rise. Now, why is that important? You know that the Apostle Paul, when he uses the preposition in with regard to Christ and the believer, is talking about union with Christ. It's strange, it's mysterious, it's wonderful, it encapsulates all the blessings that we have in Jesus. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We believe into Christ. And now our bodies are said to be in Christ. You see, when Jesus redeemed his people, when he redeemed you, he did not redeem only your soul, he redeemed also your body. He redeemed the whole of you. All that you are belongs to him. He has promised to love all of you. And so when that body is put into the grave, that body of that precious believer, that believer, not only his soul that has gone to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but his body in the grave is in union with Christ. And because that body is in union with Christ, that body must rise because Jesus, with whom the body is in union, rose. How often have I seen, perhaps, um, before a, a funeral service, when people gather, perhaps the night before, the family talks with, um, with friends and church members, and, and perhaps there is a, is a, a dead body that uh, was precious to the children. And I've seen people take the children over to the coffin when it's age appropriate. Sometimes I've seen when perhaps it isn't, but that's another question for another time. But they bring the child over and they say something like this. You know, um, your uncle is not here. Uh, He's with the Lord. Uh, He's in the presence of Christ right now. Now that's true. He's not here. He's with the Lord. That is his soul. But then they'll add something like this body is just a shell. That's not true. That's Greek philosophy, not the Christian faith. The truth of the matter is, death is the most unnatural thing in the world. The separation of body and soul is not natural. Death is not natural. It is the result of sin, the result of the fall of Adam. And the body is not just a shell that is disposable. The body is in union with Christ. And so we should say to that child, your uncle is worshiping before the Lord in soul, but his body is precious to Jesus too, purchased by his blood. And the promise is that even though he goes into the ground like a seed, he will come out of his grave at the resurrection because Jesus loved your uncle so much that he purchased the whole, the whole man, not just part of him. Now I ask you, is that not precious? And does that not influence how I use my body, my mind, my thoughts, my attitudes, my soul, that I use myself for the Lord who has bought me? But then fifthly, the church meets the Lord in the air. 16 and 17, 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The church meets the Lord in the air. The verb means to seize, to carry away by force. And we meet in the air. The Jews saw the air as demonic turf. Ephesians 2.2 speaks of the prince of the power of the air. So what is Paul saying? The victory is complete even over the demonic realm. By the way, there's no purgatory here, you noticed. No purgatory. Those holding to purgatory, if they're consistent with themselves, must apply it to believers also when Christ returns. But it doesn't say anything like that. It says we will always forever be with the Lord. Let nothing dampen or remove this comfort. The scoffers of whom we read in 2 Peter 3, because of what they considered to be the untenable delay of the return of Christ, scoffed at his coming. And I've met Christians who find it difficult to believe in the return of Christ. They do, but they find it difficult. I ask you, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Then you should have no problem believing he'll come again. It's all a seamless garment. It's all based on the authority of his word. It all hangs together. And all that we have said so far... The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise. Authorized version leads me to the fifth point. Look up, brother. Look up, brother. I mean, first of all, let your life as a Christian be determined by looking for the return of Jesus. The Thessalonians really loved one another. They needed more knowledge about their Loved ones who have preceded them in death. They needed a true understanding. The dead will enjoy Christ's return along with the living. They should actively encourage one another, Paul says. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, verse 18. But so should we. We neglect these truths with great, great loss. We're called to help one another to live in these realities. And so I say, brother, sister, O death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Your Savior rose from the dead. A future has been given with the past. And that means that you needn't be overwhelmed or overburdened when your Christian loved one dies. You grieve, but not hopelessly. But it also means that we needn't be overwhelmed or overburdened with any loss. This is applicable to any kind of grief. And so a pastor or a counselor may rightly go to this passage and say, you indeed are going through the hardest of times. I, I see it. I'm, I feel with you and for you. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. The Christian's outlook is different from the outlook of the world. We do not live as if life were meaningless. Why? Because verse 14 tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we grieve, but not unduly. We do not grieve immoderately as the pagan would. And so we can perceive 
these truths, and they help us to persevere with patience. Christ rose, all things are new. We do not have to be lost in depression. Christ came and is coming again. So things are hard. I know for many they are hard, and we do live in a fallen world, and Christians go through hard things. And I never minimize people's legitimate pain. I only want to stress that God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. So I'm not being flip when I say this morning, look up, brother, look up, sister, look up from this world to the next, look up from your sorrows to the promise of your inheritance, look up, your redemption draweth nigh. Live in hope and in readiness, because the peace that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples in John 14 is applicable to your heart and to mine here today in our present need. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that's living by faith. And that's what we're called to do as Christians. This hope characterizes believers. But let me stress, this hope can only characterize believers. If you move on into the fifth chapter, notice, for example, verses 2 and 3, where Paul continues to dwell on the return of Christ. And he says in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Tomorrow is too late. Today is the day of salvation. And so we call you to faith in Jesus Christ. Now as we bring this to a conclusion, I want to read something to you. I want to read from the Belgic Confession of Faith, 1561, a leading confession from the period of the Protestant Reformation. It has what I consider to be the most wonderful, glorious summary of the biblical teaching on the return of Christ that you can find in small compass. And this is what the Belgic Confession said, uh, drawn up by Guido de Bray. Uh, Guido de Bray actually lost his life for writing this confession and for holding forth the Reformed faith in uh, Belgium and the Netherlands. But it's the last part of the Belgic Confession. Don't tell me theology is not wonderful, transforming. Here it is. Finally, we believe according to the word of God, when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come, And the number of the elect complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven corporally and visibly 
as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the living and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. Then all men will personally appear before this great judge, both men and women and children that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the trump of God. All the dead will be raised out of the earth and their souls will be joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. As for those who will then be living, they will not die as the others, but be changed in the twinkling of an eye and from corruptible become incorruptible. Then the books, that is to say, the consciences will be opened and the dead judged according to what they will have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, all men will give an account of every idle word they have spoken, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisy of men will be disclosed and laid open before all. And therefore, the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and elect, because then their full deliverance will be perfected. And there they will receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence will be known to all, and they will see the terrible vengeance which God will execute on the wicked, who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world, and who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences and will become immortal, but only to be tormented in the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. But on the contrary, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God, his Father, and his elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes, and their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect that great day with a most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Look up, brother. Look up, sister. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.